Good morning, everyone. And welcome to worship on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. Let's prepare our hearts and minds to worship God now as we listen to the prelude. as we gather together for worship today. And before we do the call to worship, I just want to call your attention to some flowers that are in the front of the sanctuary today. We have the, the regular bouquets of flowers for worship to celebrate on this day, something that happened last week, which is the marriage of Roxanne Colton to her husband, Nathan Gall, and Jeff Colton and Dana, her her parents, and so she grew up in this church, so congratulations to the Colton family. And secondly, there's a rose on the altar over here to celebrate the birth of Alexandria Isabella Kellogg, daughter of Brad and Roxy Kellogg, and granddaughter of Jim and Kim Kellogg. I don't know if Kim and there, I see Jim in the back there, and I know Jeff is here, so congratulations everybody on these blessed events. I'm sure they appreciate the applause for all it took for them to raise these children to get to this point. Let's begin our service now with the call to worship that's printed in the bulletin. God remembers us and restores us to the community of faith. When we are in hopeless situations, God bears us up on eagle's wings. God grants healing and transformation. When we gather to worship, a merciful and loving God meets us here. We assemble with high expectations that God has much good in store for us. The gifts God bestows on us here, we use in reaching out to others. We want to use our talents in the service of Jesus Christ. And so as we come together now in this place, let us worship God.
be seated. And as we come to a time of prayer on this day that's designated around the world as World Communion Sunday, we are preparing our hearts and minds to meet God in this place through word and song and presence and sacrament to celebrate World Communion Sunday as we gather together and are reminded of Christians all over this world. This Sunday morning, we're going to be having our usual challah bread as well as naan from India, just to remind us of how closely we are connected through the fruit of the vine and also the product of the fields in the kingdom of God. Let us come to God now in prayer. Merciful God, we come here today from so many places in our lives, from high places, low places, all sorts of places in between. Some of us have a very good idea of where we're going in life. Some of us have high hopes, expectations. Some of us have no clue at all. A lot of us are just sort of muddling through, and the rest of us just keep going and going. Holy God, we want you to catch our attention in this time, in this hour of worship, in this place of, of comfort, place of challenge, place where we are fed and nourished and nurtured. We want to meet you so that our lives do take on meaning and also that we ourselves can experience the aliveness you have for each one of us in our own personal lives and in our lives together with others. Meet us where we are right now, God, as we come to a time of silent prayer by your spirit. Open us to your transforming touch. out of the silence. God's people say together, amen. amen. Let's pray together. Now the prayer of preparation and confession, the words of which are printed right here in the bulletin. Gracious and loving God, we confess that we have not lived a life conformed to Christ. You offer us the wisdom of your word, but we neglect our study of scripture. You are wise in your care for the world, but we think we know better. You call us to take up the cross and follow, but we want to forge our own paths. You offer your peace that is not as the world gives, but we want security and guarantees. You give us the gift of your commandments, but we look for the loopholes and make our own rules. Forgive us, Lord. Call us back to the life that you intend for us. We pray in the name of Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Amen.
Brothers and sisters, the good news of today, of every day of your life, is that in Jesus Christ, God does shower you with mercy and love and forgiveness and peace, promises to be with you wherever you go in your lives. Be assured that that promise is true and be at peace. Amen. Let's stand and greet those that are around us. I invite you to turn to the color page in your bulletins. This is our summary of announcements. Uh, if you're on the inside aisle, if you'll take the pew pad, sign yourself in and pass it on down there uh, as well. If you're visiting here today, welcome. Special welcome to you. There is a uh, place on the pad so you can give us your contact information as well. We'll be hearing in a moment about our stewardship campaign that's coming up soon. There's a forum on climate change on October 20th. That's happening. We invite you to participate in that. Dawn is teaching a Bible study in November. We have a wonderful fellowship opportunity coming up, the Harvest Dinner on Thursday, October 17th. Uh, you can sign up today following the service to be a part of that wonderful uh, place to hang out with other people. If you happen to, to miss last Sunday, uh, Africa Sunday, where there was a wonderful film that Michael Barber has made about our trip to Malawi in June. It is on the website, so go there. It's 25 minutes long. It's a fabulous piece, a documentary about the mission work that's happening in Malawi as well. There's also two other pages of announcements in the bulletin there, all kinds of service opportunities. Um, there's the come and see gatherings right after the service. If you'd like information about becoming a member of the church, Dawn is having a little meeting following this and also on Tuesday night to be a part of that. Let me give you a little update on our uh, refugee family, the Fosley family. Uh, it turns out that the, they have found a place. We thought they were going to live in Concord. They found a place in San Leandro. And so they have been moved into that place there. It's a wonderful place uh, and a good rent and all that. And uh, we were told that uh, Mahmoud, the father, was a mechanic. It turns out he's an electrician. Uh, and so we're going to be looking for electrical work, if you know anybody that needs that. He worked for the U.S. government as an electrician in Afghanistan. Our first need is on Thursday there is a job fair, and we need somebody to accompany him to the job fair. If you could drive him and be a part of that, please talk to me following the service uh, this Thursday afternoon. So we're beginning our stewardship campaign this month, and here to give us our announcement today is uh, the co-chair of our committee, Stephen Thorne. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? So I have a question. I'm actually going to start with my answer. My answer is our staff, our lay leaders, this beautiful building, the heavenly music that comes from out of it, our mission and ministry work, and most importantly, every one of you. So what's my question? I think you probably already know it. 
What am I thankful for at Piedmont Church? Actually, though, when I step back and really think about all the things that I'm thankful for, they are actually all because of you. Gifts of friendship, love, your strength of faith, thoughtfulness, self-sacrifice, and your generosity, be of your time or your talent, and in the context of this moment, your financial gifts. And for all this, I truly thank each and every one of you. Over 10 years, I've been a member of this church, serving along the way as a deacon, a chair of the marketing committee, an usher, and now currently as both a board of trustee member, as well as a co-chair with Donnie Montague of your stewardship committee and our 2020 annual pledge campaign. Over these years, I've been continue, uh, continually comforted and inspired by the grace of this community, in particular by what we stand for, how we unconditionally support and empower one another, and then step out to do the same thing in our local and global communities. From our thriving music and youth programs to our collective focus on welcoming and nurturing families through joint fellowship and programs like the Refugee Task Force, to continually nurturing our longtime dedicated ministries in Africa. None of this would be happening if it wasn't for your gifts of time and talent, and specifically your financial support, either through your gifts to the annual pledge campaign, our endowment program, or hopefully both. We're doing, uh, sorry, we're here doing what we are doing all because of every one of you. Bill's retirement has reminded me also how lucky we've all been to have him at our church and in our lives. His insightful sermons, his dedicated focus on our local and global service and ministries, as well as being a devoted and steadfast shepherd for the financial health of this church are just a few of his gifts to us. I will miss him when he leaves us this next year but we'll be very happy to see and hear what he does in the next phase of his life. His retirement has also made me keenly aware that our church family will also be starting a new phase of our joint life. The journey for a new senior pastor will bring positive new opportunities. With it will also include change and for some concerns and doubts. This transition might take many months or a few years. From a financial perspective, these doubts might even translate into one reducing or stopping their financial gifts to this church during this time. Know that our annual pledge campaigns refund our checkbook for the next fiscal year. They fund the operating expenses of this church. This means your gift supports everything you see and benefit from at Piedmont Church, including worship and administrative staff, Christian education, pastoral care, facilities, music, our ministry and social outreach programs. So now I have a question for you. Who's received this absolutely beautiful pledge card recently in the mail from the Stewardship Committee? And we can thank Michael Barber for this. And if you haven't received it, lucky you, there are cards in your pew, so I encourage you to take them home with you. And also, the best way to pledge is also online. Michael's created a great online experience for um, gift giving on our website. When you take this home or when you consider your pledging, between now and November 3rd, prayfully 
consider how God has blessed you, your family, and your work in the past year? What makes Piedmont Church a sacred and necessary place in you and your family's life? You'll find a gift-giving chart in the pledge card, which provides a suggested monthly gift based on your after, excuse me, on your annual income after tax. We're asking you to consider a pledge of at least 5% of your after-tax income. We're asking you um, also to be aware that our pledge goal for this year is $1.5 million. If you're pledging for the first time, welcome and thank you so much. If you've already pledged, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your pledge means everything to us and we're very appreciative of that. And that we hope that you continue to pledge this year as well and you would also encourage you to consider increasing your pledge. To all of you, thank you for your time and God bless. Thank you so much, Stephen. And I want to reiterate, too, one of the things that Stephen's mentioned and what he's thankful for are the lay people, that's y'all, in this congregation and those who aren't able to be here today. And especially, I want to thank God for the board members, the folks who are elected to serve on the boards of trustees and of deacons and of Christian education. And right now, I would like to invite anyone who is currently on the board of Christian education, of deacons, and of trustees to please come forward, and we are going to be commissioning you and recognizing you and praying for your service as we go into this new year as a congregation. Come on forward. Who's going to play the harp? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so these folks here who I will call out by name and others who weren't able to be here today were nominated and elected by you all as the congregation to serve as leaders of our church for this coming year. Some are continuing and some are are new to the various boards. I'm gonna start with the Board of Trustees. When I say your name, would you please raise your hand? Because I'm not gonna be able to see everybody who's all over here. So Joan Chow was one I couldn't see right over there. Scott Fitzgerald, Michael Osborne is president of our congregation, Stephen Thorne, Randy Litnecker, Donnie Montague, Adam Thatcher, Jan Wolf. Kathy Kelleher, Susan Monty, uh, Steve Center. He's just left his, his perch over there by the camera, I see. And Rich Thompson, Board of Deacons, Suzanne Latham and Linda McLean, who are our co-chairs. John Quantz, Helen Steers, Mike Bendrowski, Dana Gordon Colton, Leland Leitz, Janet Peterson, Katrina Bergen, Ron Heckman, Lynn Nelson, and James Ramos. And finally, the Board of Christian Education, uh, Hannah Hanrahan, who's the chair of the board, Ann Keneally, Kyla O, Allison Clayshult, Jeff Hiller, Lyle Johnson, Lindy Lowe, John Mays, 
and Steve Tindall, and Jeff Dorman, Amy McKenzie, and Zuki Todd. Welcome them all as the board. So to follow the rules and the bylaws of the church, Lynn Nelson is going to be accepting a uh, term as the Board of Deacons to replace someone else. So is there a motion to approve Lynn Nelson as to be a member of the Board of Deacons? Is there a second? All in favor, say aye. aye. Opposed, say no. Don't say that, Lynn. <laughs> Welcome to the board, Lynn. Uh, now I'm going to ask you some questions. The Apostle Paul writes, there are different gifts, but it's the same Spirit who gives them. Each one is given a gift by the Spirit to use it for the common good. Now, as duly elected members of the boards of trustees, the board of deacons, the board of Christian education, you have been called to positions of special leadership in the church. So in that light, do you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, please say, we do. Yes. Will you serve the people of Piedmont Community Church with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love, relying on God's mercy and rejoicing in his promises through Jesus Christ, our Lord? If so, please say, we will. Yes. And do you, as members of the congregation, affirm these men and women as board members, called by God to guide us in the way of Jesus Christ, and do we promise to support them as they seek to be faithful to this call? If so, please say loudly, we do. We do. All right. And now I'm going to ask Reverend McNabb to pray for us. If you'll lay hands on each other as we go down the line, an ancient symbol of all of us being together and receiving the blessing of, of God. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have called forth into leadership these men and women, to help us be your church in this time and in this place. Lord, we ask that you would give them courage and patience and wisdom and love, that you would guide them and guide us to be your people here. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome again and blessings, everyone. You may be seated. Watchful eye, or if he is the spirit. 
Today is the fourth part of our series on the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And before we read the scripture, I just want to make one comment. I heard a story about the U.S. Treasury Department, and they had a big problem because there were all these counterfeit $20 bills that were flooding the market. They tried to teach bank tellers and merchants how to spot these counterfeit bills, but they were having a lot of trouble because every time they would have their identifying markers, the counterfeiters would get smart and fix that problem, and so they constantly got more and more sophisticated. Finally, the Treasury Department decided to try a whole new approach. They got the bank tellers and the merchants to study a real, genuine $20 bill, and to look at it and to memorize everything about it under the theory that when you know the real thing, like the back of your hand, you can spot a phony anytime. When you know the real thing, in this passage we're just about to read, Paul is going to give us kind of a formula for what a real Christian is like, what it looks like to be a real Christian. And there's going to be a few characteristics that we're going to need to examine very closely this morning because we want to be this kind of a person in God's eyes. So here uh, we have, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to focus on the first part of this passage from Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, by the way, just a moment. Remember, Paul is in prison in Rome when he wrote this. We talked about this the very first week. This is the last letter he's ever going to write. Right after he writes this, he's executed for treason. And so these are the last words that Paul, he's writing from a Roman jail cell to the church in Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. We can stop there. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. Matt Emmons had the gold medal in sight in the rifle shooting event at the Olympics in 2004. 
he was just one shot away from claiming victory in the 50-meter three-position rifle event. He didn't even need a bullseye to win. His final shot merely had to be on target. Normally, the shot he made on his final shot would have received a score of 8.1, more than enough for a gold medal. But in what was described as an extremely rare mistake in elite competition, Emmons fired at the wrong target. Standing in lane two, he fired at the target in lane three. His score for a great shot on the wrong target, zero. Instead of walking away with the gold medal, he ended up in eighth place. It doesn't matter how accurate you are if you aim at the wrong target. It doesn't work. To use another metaphor, it doesn't matter if you've climbed to the top of the ladder if it's leaning against the wrong building. Paul is telling us in this passage some of the qualities that we need to have to live a life that God would be pleased with. He's telling us what it looks like to live a good Christian life. You know, in Paul's letters, he always begins with theology and the good news of the grace of God. And we, we read that in chapter 2 uh, as well, last week as well, that we're saved by grace through faith, he says. It's a free gift. It's just given to us. But then in most of his letters, Paul, about halfway through, turns from theology to ethics. And the question then becomes, how then shall we live? How shall we respond to this grace that God has given to us? Can you imagine being given a gift so wonderful, so incredible, that all you could think of is, how can I be worthy of this gift? How can I possibly show my gratitude and be worthy of this amazing gift? Let's say somebody that you just love horses and somebody gives you a horse. Not just any horse. The horse that won the Kentucky Derby is now your horse. Let's say you love golf. Somebody gives you your own golf course for you to have. Or you're dying of a terrible disease and someone invents a miracle cure that saves your life. How can I be worthy? You would be so motivated to show your gratitude and determination to please the one who gave you the gift, right? Motivation, determination. In July of this year, I did a very unusual thing. I joined a gym. I know that's shocking. Um, I've exercised my whole life, but I've never done it with supervision, uh, instruction, uh, somebody there telling you what to do. And um, as I filled out the application and signed up for this gym, the young guy, the super buff trainer guy said, uh, he, he sat me down, he said, I'd like to ask you a few questions, Mr. McNabb. He said, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel about your body shape? Why do you think I'm here? <laughs> he wanted to know just how dissatisfied I was. How motivated I was going to be. Because these gym folks know that, you know, half the people who join quit within two or three months don't even go. 
It's an amazing thing. He wanted to know if I would be motivated. Paul says that we have to live a life worthy of our calling. We've been, give, we've been called by God, given this great gift of our salvation. So now, live a life worthy of that, worthy of your calling. And he's going to give us five characteristics, five qualities, that if we have these things in our life, and you might want to use the 10-point scale to gauge how you're doing on these five things uh, as well in your own life, to, that are the marks of a truly Christian life. By the way, just a side note, uh, some religions are very prescriptive. They have tons of rules. Others don't. Uh, for example, if you're a deist, you have a vague belief in God, but you have no rules that you have to follow. On the other extreme, if you're an Orthodox Jew, there's 635 rules in the Mosaic Code that you have to follow to be an Orthodox Jew. Well, Christianity is somewhat in the middle. We don't have 635 rules, we have no dietary rules or anything, but we have these principles. Principles that Jesus shared with us, like the Beatitudes, and then principles that Paul shares with us through his letters. And so by, by adhering to these principles, then we're able to live that kind of a life. And so these five characteristics that I'm going to talk to you about this morning, by the way, even if God had never said you should be this way, I believe that when we go through them, you'll say, wow, I would want to be this way anyway. These are profoundly attractive characteristics. They're the kind of characteristics that make life good and worth living. I believe that they, they're all that way. Will Rogers, the humorist, said that we should live so that you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. And so the way that we're going to look at living is Paul's suggestion for this. So the first one is um, lowliness or humility. Now this is interesting that this humility and lowliness was not even a virtue in the Roman world. There's many things that, were that they thought were virtues that Jesus also thinks is a virtue, like courage or truthfulness. But this was not considered a virtue in their world. It was considered part of a slave mentality. They looked on humility as something to be despised, cowering, cringing, servile, inept. Mark Twain once noted a man's humility, but then he said, but of course he has much to be humble about. <laughs> That's how they looked at it, that people were humble because they had a lot to be humble about. But Jesus elevated this virtue and made it a characteristic of a Christian. It's kind of a weird virtue because it's so ephemeral. The minute you're convinced that you're humble, you're not. The minute you think you have it, you don't. It's like writing a book called Humility and How I Achieved It. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal on how the movie industry is plagued by pride and rampaging egos. This is not news, is it? The questions of how to resolve which star gets top billing, whose name appears first, and in what size letters is usually a huge battle. Months of delicate negotiations are sometimes required to deal with what one writer calls the conceit of the industry. 
To satisfy two superstars, a studio created two sets of screen titles and two sets of ads with one star named first in each. Then they had to run each ad exactly 50% of the time. As outrageous as that conceit of the industry may appear, the madness for status is epidemic. In our world, we desperately need to hear the words of Jesus, who said, no, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. This whole striving of to be first, all that kind of stuff. Now, humility consists of several things, but most essential is self-knowledge. It is the awareness of our faults and limitations. Socrates' simple injunction to know thyself is actually one of the most difficult things in the world. It is to recognize the ways that we fall short. We do that by seeing someone who is far ahead of us. You may think that you're a good golfer until you go to a professional golf tournament and you watch those guys play. You may think you're a good piano player until you watch a true professional play. Understanding our creatureliness and remembering that we are absolutely dependent on God. The second quality that he mentions is gentleness. Sometimes translated meekness. Same word that Jesus used in what he said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The Greek word is praeotes, which has two meanings. The first is, is Aristotle. You know, Aristotle always believed in moderation. And he said the perfect place of virtue is right in the middle between two extremes. That when you're right in the middle between two extremes, then you're at the virtuous place. So praeotes was given the meaning to be the mean between being too angry and never angry at all. The man who is Priotes is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. The kind of person who is kindled with indignation at the wrongs and sufferings of other people, but not moved to anger at his own sufferings. It's also the word that's used in Greek for an animal that's been tamed. Priotes is when you have a big, strong horse, but you can ride the horse because the horse has been domesticated. You're able to, to, to use that ox or that horse because it, it is no longer wild. It is useful now. So a person with this virtue has his or her passions under control. And because self-control is pretty much beyond our power, you could say that the person who has priotes is God-controlled in their life. The third thing that Paul mentions is patience. He says we have to have patience. Also translated long-suffering. A person is long-suffering. Maybe a good translation is just when you hang in there. You know, sometimes you say, how you doing? And somebody will say, I'm hanging in there. That's all you can do sometimes. And in my life, in ministry over the years, I've, not, I've known a lot of amazing people who have hung in there through some awful stuff. Whether it's a, a physical illness, a disease, to hang in there through that struggle or being locked in a terrible relationship, 
uh, to hang in there or, or with children that are going off on the wrong track and causing lots of problems. To hang in there, to be patient, to be long-suffering. These are the, this is what Paul is, is advocating for us. To refuse to retaliate, to refuse to take revenge is the person who is patient and long-suffering. The church that I grew up in, there was a hymn that we would sing about Jesus on the cross. And it was called, He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels. It went like this. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior, so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. Then the chorus. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. I remember when I would sing that song, I would think, man, good thing for those Romans, they had Jesus and not me up there on the cross. Because I'd have called the angels and say, bring your machine guns. We're going to mow these guys down. But not Jesus. Jesus was long-suffering. This is the spirit that bears insult and injury without bitterness or hatred. This is the person who knows how to suffer fools gladly. And then the fourth quality that Paul mentions in this text is love. He says you got to have love. Now, many people have remarked on the impoverishment of the English language when it comes to this word love. Because we use this one word for so many different things. We use the same word for, for our feelings about our spouse as we do for our feelings about fried chicken. I love my wife and I love fried chicken. But those are two very different things. They're very different experiences. Now, luckily, Greek is uh, a little better on this because they have four main words. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book um, on the four Greek words for love. The first one is eros, which, from which we get the word erotic, which is love between two partners that involves sexual attraction. There's the word philia, which is the warm affection that exists between friends. They have the word storge, which is usually uh, used to refer to love within a family. And then there's the word that Paul uses here, agape, the love for the stranger, love for those that you don't know. William Barclay says, the real meaning of agape is unconquerable benevolence. If we regard a person with agape, it means that nothing he can do will make us seek anything but his highest good. Though he injures or insults us, we will never feel anything but kindness toward him. That means that Christian love is not an emotional thing. Agape is a product of the will. It is possible to love someone that you can't stand, that you don't even like, because it's not a feeling. It is an act of the will. Agape is the kind of love that compels a Christian to forgo bitterness, the option of revenge, and to search for the highest good for other people. The last thing that Paul mentions in this text is peace. 
He says if you have humility, uh, if you have gentleness, if you have patience, and if you have love, then the result of that is going to be peace. You're going to be able to live in peace with other people if you have these qualities. The fifth quality is the result of the presence of the first four qualities. He says that the Ephesian church should preserve their unity and live in peace with one another. The peace, uh, the, the only way to do that is to give up having yourself in the driver's seat and to give that over to God so that you become born again. And instead of yourself being the number one thing in your life, that God becomes the number one thing. If a Christian dies to self and Christ springs to life within our hearts, then comes the peace, the oneness, that is the great hallmark of the church. That is what Paul wished for the members of the Ephesian church. And that is what God wishes for the members of Piedmont Church today. Amen.
thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We join this day with all the saints of all ages who lift their voices in the presence of God singing. Sunday to join together with Christians all around the world that are gathering around tables like this to remember our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the time that we remember the last night in his life when he gathered together disciples in an upper room and as they were there and they were having dinner and eating together he took the bread that was before him and said take this and eat for this is my body that is broken for you. And he took the cup that was there and he said, Drink this, for this is the cup of salvation poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let us join together in reciting the prayer that he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Christ, I invite you to this, his table. It's the largest, most inclusive table in the world because everyone is welcome. Doesn't matter your age or your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your economic condition, whether you've been here your whole life or this is your first Sunday, you're welcome at this table. If you're here today and your heart is filled with joy, bring that joy and give thanks. If you're here and you're carrying a heavy burden, Jesus said, bring your burden to me and I will give you a lighter one. So leave your burden here at this table. He said that if you're spiritually thirsty, come to me and I'll give you living water and you'll never be spiritually thirsty again. That's what we're doing here today at this table. Come, for all things are ready.
join together now in reading or reciting the 23rd Psalm. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen.
and sisters, I remind you as you go forth from this place, especially having been here today at this table, that you leave as representatives and ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. So live your life this week in such a way that wherever you are, when people see you, they'll see Christ living in you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and always hold you in the palm of his hand. Amen. Go in peace.